You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. The objective is to lower the cost of this direct air capture system to be somewhere around $100 a ton over the long term and be able to do it on an industrial scale where it can be done at massive million tons per annum or tens of millions tons per annum in the middle of nowhere so that you can essentially create a gigaton type of solution and uh, be able to industrialize carbon removal. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Shantanu Agarwal, co-founder and director of Sistera. Sistera is a startup company developing a direct air capture solution, which is one of the leading types of technology-based carbon removal. We'll talk about how direct air capture works and discuss Sistera's technology approach and how it fits into the broader carbon removal landscape. And as usual, I'll ask Shantanu to share some advice for those interested in working at the intersection of business and climate change. This topic covers a lot of technical terms and abbreviations, including direct air capture being referred to as DAC. We'll do our best to define them in the interview, and we'll include some resources and definitions in the show notes at climaterising.org. Here's my interview with Shantanu Agarwal of Sistera. Shantanu, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you, Professor Toffel. It's a pleasure. So we get the opportunity to welcome you back to HBS, where you were a student here from 2008-2010, and you've gone off and been involved with many different startups. Today, we're here to talk about your role at Sistera. Why don't we start with that? Can you just give a brief introduction and what your role is at Sistera, what it has been and what it is now? So maybe to start with, uh, give you a little background on how it, it all happened and how Sustion and Sustera actually came about. I was happily working away in a private equity firm in uh, uh, energy technologies and uh, obviously aware of the climate change problem, wanted to do something about it. That's when I met a group of scientists in the North Carolina RTP area and uh, we banded together to start Sustion as a R&D incubator of sorts. And that's where we've been playing around with a lot of technologies in carbon capture and carbon utilization. My co-founder, Raghubir Gupta, is the prime technology driver for that. Having started that in 2017, we played around with quite a few technologies through early 2018 and 19, and then in collaboration with Columbia University, found a technology which was quite intriguing in terms of the chemical properties and allowed us to sort of build a quite differentiated value proposition for direct air capture of CO2. And that's how Sustera happened and we spun it out into its own uh, company and raise money and kind of growing that quite significantly now. Great. And when you were searching for this technology, were you looking for a direct air capture technology or were you more broadly looking for technologies that resonated with your engineering background? The original business model with which I and my co-founder started Sustion was around us having a deep desire to make a dent in the climate change problem. We knew that there's quite a few interesting science concepts which are out there uh, in the sort of research infrastructure of U.S. And we were sort of filtering through a lot of these interesting science concepts, talking to collaborators, innovators, researchers, professors all across the U.S. and even some Canada and, and U.K. As we evaluated those technologies, we would come up with certain ones which had potential in our view. So we would then collaborate with those innovators to do joint research to further the TRL level or technology readiness level of that technology. We were kind of agnostic on that as long as the technology had 
potential in the whole climate impact domain and was something which we could actually add value to, we would take it on. So a lot of the stuff which we were working on was in the carbon capture domain because of that, point source and direct air capture. And similarly, we also worked on carbon conversion and hydrogen. So over the period of time, we actually evaluated and worked on more than 35, 40 different technologies. And at this early stage, there's a high failure rate as well. So more than 50, 60% of those fail. So we evaluated and worked up joint research projects on a bunch of these, and some of them have succeeded, and some of them have succeeded quite well. The direct air capture technology in Sustera being one of the very good successes. And let's just go back. There's a lot of jargon in this space. So you distinguished point source versus direct air capture. Just to put a little clarity, point source means a more carbon-rich environment, like a smokestack emission, for example versus direct air capture being more oriented toward ambient air. Is that the right distinction there? Yes, that is correct. So point source is uh, any source which is actually has a concentrated stream of CO2. And a concentrated stream of CO2 could be as low as a 2% concentrate because even that is 100x or 1,000x more than what the environment is sitting at. The environment is at 0.04% or 400 ppm. And you mentioned conversion. Just can you explain what that term is in this context? A lot of the work going on right now is trying to figure out wanting to do something with the CO2 which we are capturing and concentrating. And if we can actually produce something which is useful, that actually helps with the overall economics because otherwise you're only left up with the option of pushing it down into the earth. And that is essentially, I mean, yes, you're treating a garbage and <laughs> uh, converting that garbage into putting it out deep into the earth. And that's that's fine. But if you can actually produce some useful product out of it, then uh, that's more of a economic and a uh, value creative step. And that's what we call carbon utilization. When you take CO2 and you convert it to something, there's a lot of different projects working on that where people are trying to take CO2 and make methanol or ethanol or one of the starting building block chemicals like uh, ethylene, which will allow for a lot of plastics to be made or even sustainable aviation fuel where you can make jet fuel out of CO2. So all those things are in the carbon utilization domain. Right. And so, but we're going to talk for today's conversation more upstream, like how do we acquire that carbon? How do we remove it from the atmosphere or remove it from point sources? As we talked about in a prior episode, there's both nature-based solutions to removing carbon and there's technology-based approaches. And so today's conversation, we're really going to focus on technology-based, of which direct air capture is one example. Can you take us through the landscape of what are the various types of technology-based carbon removal that are out there, that are being commercialized or researched at the moment? In terms of the technology-based solutions for carbon capture, there's a point source capture, and then there is the air-based capture or direct air capture. In the point source capture, there's an established technology and technologies, which are all around mostly amine-based solvent systems, which are used for capturing CO2 from industrial source or a power plant source. And these have been used for quite a while in the sort of existing industrial setup, but they need to be scaled and new plants have to be built with these point source capture systems in place. And a lot of the existing plants have to be retrofitted. So there is a huge industry to be created in this point source capture technology piece, which is mostly uh, installation of an existing established uh, technology play. So a fairly mature technology play on this side, but the kicker is it has to be where there's a target-rich environment, meaning smokestacks, either power plants or industrial sites. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Got it. And so the other side is the ambient air, and there there's a couple of options as well. Absolutely. So the air-based systems are, these are new. This is a whole new domain which has opened up because people started investing in carbon removal. The concentration of CO2 in air is 419 ppm, which is equivalent to one ton of CO2 for 3,000 tons of air. So you have to sift through 3,000 tons of air to be able to capture one ton of CO2. It's really not, if you think of it, very pertinent or something which lends itself to taking it out because there's such a low concentration of CO2 in it. So historically, nobody wanted to touch air as a system for taking CO2 out. But that is the ecosystem in which we have been dumping CO2 out. And for us to create negative emissions, we have to figure out a pathway to taking CO2 out of this low concentration form as well. Over the last 10 years and more so in the last three, four years, there's a lot of momentum around this whole domain where now technologies have emerged. And in that, there is the bioenergy-based pathway where essentially the biome or the biosphere is being used to take CO2 out of the air and convert it to some sort of biomaterial. And that biomaterial is then used to isolate the CO2, either in the form of actually CO2 when you're burning it and generating energy, which is the case for BECCS, where you take a biomass material, burn it, generate electricity, and take the resultant CO2 and put it down into the earth. So you're capturing CO2 at the same time you're generating energy. Then there are other flavors of it where you're taking bioenergy and pyrolyzing it to make biochar, which can then be either put down on the earth or spread on agricultural fields, making that char-like material capture CO2, which cannot be changed back very easily. Or uh, there are companies which are actually making biomass and then converting it into bio-oil and then putting that oil down into the earth. So that's one segment of companies which are taking a biomass-based pathway to convert CO2 from air into some sort of biomaterial and then using that to sequester CO2. So there's burning it, which produces electricity, and at the same time you're capturing the CO2 and burying it. There's pyrolyzing it, converting it into biochar, making the carbon unavailable, although you can maybe spread it. Uh, it just becomes unavailable to leak into the atmosphere. And then there's the bio-oil production, which then you can bury that. Say a word, if you could, about pyrolyzing for our listeners who are unfamiliar with that process. Yeah, pyrolyzing essentially means heating biomaterial or any kind of plant material to a very high temperature without the presence of oxygen. So it essentially chars it and converts it into a black slushy material, which dries up eventually. So it becomes like a char. Think charcoal, right? Charcoal is made right. by pyrolyzing coal. Biochar is made by pyrolyzing biomaterial. Okay, great. This is the bioenergy leg of approaches to take CO2 out of the air. And then there's a whole nother set of technologies that are based on chemistry and mechanical properties, which are largely known as direct air capture. Can you tell us about like what that landscape looks like? There is a huge bunch of those kind of technologies as well now. Quite a varied amount of approaches are being tried at that in terms of the chemistry of the sorbent materials, which can be utilized, and the mechanical contraptions of how you can actually do that. Invariably, this whole domain of engineering-based CO2 capture from air depends on some sort of a sorbent material, which is cycled into an adsorption cycle, 
where it's absorbing CO2 from air, and then a desorption cycle where it's desorbing that CO2 which it has absorbed during the absorption phase and desorbs it into a concentrated CO2 stream and then is recycled back to absorb again. So it basically goes through an absorption, desorption, absorption, desorption, almost like a Tom cycle. In fact, uh, and this is what increases uh, the concentration. That's right. There are companies which are trying to use the existing cooling towers and uh, use that setup to expose the air to the sorbent material and capture CO2 there. There are companies which are building custom type of cooling towers or air contactors, to be uh, more precise, which are customized for their particular process to expose their sorbent. For example, Climeworks uses a amine-based sorbent material, and they've got a, a fan which is uh, horizontally placed, and that exposes their sorbent material to that airflow. Similar type of system is there for another company called Global Thermostat, which uses amine-based system, but it is placing these amines in honeycomb-like structures, which are exposing a large amount of surface area to contact with air. These materials are called monolith materials. And again, they're cycling the sorbent from a adsorption to a desorption cycle. There's another company called Carbon Engineering, which is using a, a liquid-based capture agent where they're exposing the air to a flow of alkaline liquid. That alkaline liquid then reacts with the CO2 and captures it. What I'm trying to get at is there's a variety of different processes which people are trying to figure out a pathway which can be the lowest cost and most scalable to allow for engineering-based direct air capture to happen at scale. Because the objective is to lower the cost of this direct air capture system to be somewhere around $100 a ton over the long term and be able to do it on an industrial scale where it can be done at massive million tons per annum or tens of millions tons per annum in the middle of nowhere so that you can essentially create a gigaton type of solution and uh, be able to industrialize carbon removal. So there sounds like a race between these different chemical and mechanical processes. These different companies are placing bets on different formulations and their ability to go down a learning curve to reduce costs while at the same time trying to figure out how to scale up in a way that gets them down to this magical something like $100 per ton or something like that. Where are the costs today in the direct air capture space? I imagine they, they're quite a bit higher in some cases at least than $100 a ton. I would say most of them are in the ballpark of $500 a ton, if not even more. And they're all working towards figuring out an engineering path. A lot of them are actually building their first pilot plant right now. So even calling them that, okay, there's a, uh, their cost is $500 or $700 is really meaningless because they haven't got a working unit, commercial unit, which is operating. It's all on paper at this right. point. So all of these companies have to build their first units, demonstrate their technology, and showcase that it actually has a engineering and a clear scientific pathway to reduce the cost down to $100 a ton. Why we believe in that is because there's a, very good precedent of being us being able to reduce cost in these scale-up uh, mechanisms, which we have done in the case of solar industry and the wind industry and the lithium battery industry. So the same sort of pathway and a cost reduction cycle can very much be applied to what carbon removal is being put towards. Uh, all you need is really viable chemistry and a mechanical pathway and then 
the attributes of how industrialization happens and how scale-up happens in a gigafactory will allow that cost to come down. The belief of uh, the sort of investment groups which are investing in this and the overall industry is that we have a very good shot at bringing the cost down of engineered back to $100 in the, in the long run, for sure. And who's funding these various ventures? Is this coming from government loans, like from Department of Energy grants or loans programs? Are these private investors? Are these the brands that are committing themselves to net zero? Are they also placing bets on technology? Like, where? What's the funding sources? It's mixed bag. Uh, a lot of investment companies actually have taken interest, which were traditionally not really investors in these kind of domains at all. A lot of tech funds have created their own clean tech funds. Breakthrough Energy Ventures probably was one of the leading funds which started investing in this domain. And But there are a lot of other foundations and uh, other groups which have also seeded up the money for the early stage funding. For Climbworks, for example, there's a lot of Swiss funding and a lot of philanthropic funding which came through to allow them to sort of build their technology into a place where now they have investors which are more professional investors and more like traditional investors who are equity return incentivized rather than the traditional philanthropic type of money which came in early. So what I would say is that it starts out with a lot of philanthropic and uh, more climate-focused funds which started the ball rolling. But now a lot of people have got on the bandwagon and a lot of traditional funds and traditional groups which have started their climate groups are very much interested in this because they see that direct air capture is going to become one of the major industries of the future. It's a trillion dollar opportunity. Okay, let me tell you a secret. You don't need to be in a Harvard classroom to hear the best and brightest minds in business. I'm Chris Lenane, host of Harvard Business School Online's new podcast, The Parlor Room. On each episode, I sit down with esteemed Harvard Business School professors to demystify vital business concepts in a way that's entertaining and insightful. We break down academic theory without sacrificing depth. Want to learn how to become a master negotiator? We have the perfect episode for you. Or perhaps the best way to build your personal brand. Yep, we've got that covered too. On each episode of The Parlor Room, you'll gain useful takeaways to navigate the business world from wherever you are. Hear business concepts come to life. Listen to The Parlor Room on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've talked about the cost seeking $100 per ton for carbon removal as a goal. There's a trillion-dollar opportunity, lots of entrance into the investment space. This is all predicated on massive demand for carbon removal. Where do you envision that massive demand coming from? Massive demand is here. As mankind, we are right now still emitting 40 gigaton per annum. Within six, seven years, where we would have crossed the one and a half degrees. At the current rate, in another 10 to 15 years after that, we would be at two degrees. So we need the massive mitigation plan to reduce our rate at which we are emitting gigatons of CO2 out into the air. With all estimates out there, we need at least five gigaton, if not 10 gigaton by 2050 of negative emissions. Now, just to give you that in a, a more uh, digestible numbers, from 2025 onwards, we need to scale 5,000x to be at the most conservative amount of CO2 removal which we need to do as mankind. That's, that's the case if we're going to meet a two degrees warming scenario based on current forecasts. That is correct. 
So you're you're pointing out the the societal need for these technologies to actually meet that two degree target. It's not at all clear to me that in fact society will agree to make those investments. So far, we're talking about the sort of latent demand if we agree to meet those targets. But there needs to be a transition from latent demand to actual demand. Sure. And that, I imagine, is going to come either through government action, which creates incentives for folks to have to procure carbon removal or avoidance credits, or from private sector actors who are trying to realize the commitments of net zero and the science-based targets that they have proclaimed but not necessarily acted aggressively against. So do you see these both of these channels leading to material actual demand as opposed to latent demand? I wanted to give you the, the, the sort of large-scale societal prerogative. Now, in terms of the signals which are coming into the market, first of all, there is a fairly significant voluntary carbon market which is now uh, taking uh, form, and there's quite a significant demand for permanent carbon removal rather than just temporary, more nature-based type of removal, which have been uh, more the flavor of the world. And that shift is happening quite significantly and quite uh, strategically by most of these buyers who are committed to net zero and want to show it in their balance sheet and show it to their shareholders that they're actually taking action. There are large funds which have started leading the charge on that. For example, the the Frontier Fund, which has been formed with the help of Stripe and uh, McKinsey and a bunch of other companies in the tech domain to come together to put $1 billion to work for making carbon removal purchases in advance to help generate some momentum around these companies. There's a large voluntary market which is taking shape. And on top of that, the Inflation Reduction Act recently put into place a $180 price marker from the U.S. Treasury, which essentially gives a 10-year leeway here from uh, from today to about 2033 for any of the uh, carbon removal companies to go out there and build and sell the removed carbon credits to the Treasury for $180 per ton if it is being taken away from the air and then sequestered down into the earth. There is similar sort of incentives and programs being put in place in other countries, specifically Europe and Canada, are also quite significantly enjoined into this whole direction. Let's dive into Sistera, the company that you've helped found and led. How does it differentiate itself from these other plays? So you, your competition will be these other direct air capture companies. There'll be the other bioenergy companies. And to some extent, maybe, depending on who the consumer is, it could be folks who would also consider this as an alternative to point source and maybe even nature-based solutions. So if you're a company that says, I just need carbon credits to reach my net zero goal, there's a lot of differences between them. How does Sestera plan to stand out? First of all, I'm not running Sestera. We've got a very capable CEO and Mary Haas who's running Sestera now. Uh, I did found it with my co-founder, Raghubir, and we commercialized it and raised the money, and now I'm on the board. How we are differentiating is in the way that we have got multiple aspects of that technology set up, which allow us to be a low-cost, highly scalable, almost modular system, which we can deploy on the fly. Now, one of the biggest differentiators is our sorbent material. Our sorbent is based on abundantly available material, which is quite established in terms of the supply chain, which it already exists, and it is cheap. 
So that allows us to, first of all, have a lower cost as compared to some of the other competitors. So we have a more reliable, highly active, kinetically superior system, which allows us to sort of differentiate against the existing amine-based competitors. Allows uh, the system to be, first of all, cheap, allows it to be having a standard structure, standard, almost like Lego block type of uh, architecture and allows it to be built at scale, deployable, such that we can actually get multiples of these in the field and uh, get that to a million ton scale quicker than any of the other competitors who are trying to, in some case, build quite massive units, which they have to do at individual scales to prove at each scale. We are building a unit which is going to be a smaller unit, which can then go n number of. The idea being just like a solar farm where you have a single panel and then you just put multiple panels out there in the farm to have a massive five gigawatt setup we are hoping to have a similar setup where we have a standardized unit which you can have n number of to really have as much capacity as you want we are going to produce these standard units in a gigafactory type of setup so that we can have a cost reduction almost like a car where you're producing lots of them so the individual cost of it single car goes down. So what will it look like once you've deployed a unit? Will it contain its own power structure? Will it have its own solar panels or its own wind farm so, so that the yeah. all the electricity, you mentioned it's an electricity intensive process, that itself will be sort of built to be green with a of the microgrid? Is that how you're thinking about this? Our process re- requires us to have an access to renewable electricity. So we can either pull it off a existing renewable power plant uh, which is there nearby which can actually supply that electricity to us or we can co-site and co-build a renewable power plant on the site where we are building these units the beauty of our system is that uh, it is uh, doesn't need a lot more uh, apart from electricity and a place to put the co2 uh, so we could be in the middle of nowhere in some place wyoming or north dakota and we could have a large tract of land where we are putting windmills and or solar farm and batteries to really generate the electricity and then use that electricity to capture CO2 from there because CO2 is everywhere and we can essentially capture it out there in the middle of nowhere and put it down into the earth. The vision would be, yes, there's a large solar farm and besides it, there is a large carbon removal farm. Think of it like a small cooling tower, which has essentially got a fan at the top, which is uh, sucking air from the top and air is being sucked in from the sides of this cooling tower. Um, let's say it's a small cooling tower, about 10, 15 meter high, let's say. I'm just giving you a vision. And from the sides, air is being sucked into it. And the sides have this sorbent material, which is absorbing the CO2 out of the air. As the air comes into that tower, it leaves from the top. And the air which is coming out of the top doesn't have CO2 anymore because the CO2 has been absorbed into the sorbent material. And then that CO2 is concentrated and taken out from that sorbent material. And then it's pipelined into a pipe network, which is set up on that site. And then that CO2 gets pumped into the earth. Yeah. So unlike many siting decisions about proximity to supply chain or proximity to customer base, the issues that you face are quite different. They're proximity to low-cost electricity, renewable electricity production windy or sunny areas, for example, access by rail or truck to get the equipment there and perhaps service it periodically, and then the ability to actually drill into the earth to sequester. 
if you're sequestering it right there on site. So are those the main characteristics that you're thinking about when you think about siting decisions? That is correct. And today, as it stands, sequestration sites is the the biggest problem because right now we don't have as many sequestration sites in the continental U.S. So uh, right now we're all restricted by that because EPA is um, has has a backlog of Class Six wells, which it's trying to slowly certify. So that defines today's decisions. Mm. So this is the part where you're drilling into the into the earth to ensure it's done safely and properly and with permanence. That is correct. They're called class six wells. Uh, these are yeah. the wells which allow you to put CO2 down into the earth. Where do you expect these sites to be predominant? Are they gonna be distributed throughout the world? Are there some countries that we're gonna to expect to see a lot of these? How do you think about that? So the location of the, the siting of this particular uh, industry will depend on, at the end of the day, like any other industry, you know, economics. Now, for example, IRA is incentivizing the companies to put those factories up in the U.S. because that's where the Inflation Reduction Act credits will be paid for. And that's rightly so because the U.S. taxpayer should be paying for the industry to be created in in U.S. And this is a new trillion dollar industry, which which U.S. should take a big chunk of. Now, but at the same time, there will be geographically and naturally uh, favorable locations in the world where Electricity is very cheap. For example, Iceland has very cheap electricity. That's the reason a bunch of aluminum industry moved to Iceland because of cheap energy. What is it that makes electricity cheap in Iceland? There's a bunch of um, geothermal energy. It's cold and there's a lot of heat from the earth exposed at a very shallow depth. So you can actually make geothermal energy very cheaply. Those kind of sites lend themselves to provide cheap energy to do these kind of things at large scale. And that's the reason Climeworks put their first site in Iceland. Uh, but at the same time, manufacturing, supply chains, professional skilled employees who can actually maintain these units. And, and at the end of the day, the customers who are paying for this are all going to define the overall economics and it will drive uh, where these things will be cited. I think in the short term, in the next five to 10 years, most of these will be cited in the Western Hemisphere, US, North America, and, and Europe. And then uh, they will eventually go into the rest of the world, Middle East and Asia. Let's step up a level. So you had an entrepreneurial background with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Harvard Business School. And you mentioned you were an investor and then you wanted to sort of pursue some entrepreneurial ventures. Of the whole world of entrepreneurialism, what led you into direct air capture as an area? Like you could have gone anywhere. Yeah, so... (laughs) I'm a chemical engineer, and uh, uh, I was working and uh, deploying capital in the energy technology world. If not working and solving climate change, then uh, if I have the means and the technical background as a chemical engineer to at least think in that direction, I thought this is this would be the best use of my time and energies. My goal was to really uh, make a dent in the climate change problem. I was not particularly going after direct air capture when we started. We were looking at, as I said, uh, bunch of different technologies out there all around uh, how do we actually take the CO2 out of the environment and from point sources or from air. And we actually stumbled upon this technology having worked with some of the other players who are uh, now more established and were working in the direct air capture domain. We were already aware of the challenges they were facing. And then we found this particular technology set which we thought could actually solve some of those problems. 
So that's how we kind of stumbled into this and then we grew it. My journey is more accidental than planned, I would say, but the intention was always to try to do something in the climate change domain, which has really led me to where I am. Interesting. So some of our listeners are considering dedicating their careers at the intersection of business and climate change. Now, some of them will have a technical background as you did, but many of them, of course, do not. What do you see as the biggest opportunities and what advice do you have for them? Firstly, I'll caveat and tell everyone that I do not think that you need a technical background to make an impact on the climate change problem. The whole climate change problem is is the problem for a generation and we need as many intelligent, driven, business-oriented people who are coming into this domain to really help create these business models, help create these new ideas and germinate them into, into businesses which can actually uh, help make a dent in this problem. Advice for somebody who's coming out is that there is a ton of opportunity right now in terms of just using traditional technologies and applying them to climate change. Similarly, all these industries today, which exist in their traditional form, will have to figure out how to adapt to the climate change problem. That means they have to figure out how to reduce their emissions, how to start accounting for their carbon, how to start uh, uh, figuring out not only a scope one, scope two, but also scope three emissions. So even if you have expertise in making biscuits, that biscuit company needs a solution. Uh, If you have experience in software, then there's a software solution for these different types of industries to, to apply for climate change. So we're just at the start of this whole climate change awareness and the permutation of the current industry, the way it operates to be a climate conscious industry. And that spins out a bunch of different opportunities. Straight away, there are opportunities which IRA has put together where there is a price already on carbon for point source. There's a price already on uh, direct air capture or uh, air-based removal. Then you can actually join a bunch of these startups, early stage technology companies, which are trying to create businesses out of them. There are so many different technologists out there today who have been either funded by DOE or have got uh, early stage idea or or technology which is uh, semi-proven, but uh, needs uh, help of a business major to come in and sort of really make it a business. DOE does a very good job of bringing out a lot of these technologies. So you can go to some of the DOE showcases. There are industry bodies now getting created like DAC Coalition, where you can go and check out some of these early stage companies which are trying to play their role in direct air capture. So and each of these companies need business folks to come in to help. Lastly, and uh, most commonly, HBS folks are um, big in finance. Private equity, venture capital, and debt, all of these things are required in significant, significant amount. I mean, $150 billion per annum is uh, what people are estimating towards going towards uh, climate tech in U.S. starting now. So a lot of the capital provisions which you guys are wanting to do and be in in the capital markets, you can play in the capital markets as well towards climate. So it sounds like lots of opportunities for folks with technical backgrounds, as well as strategists, marketing, financiers, and the financing side. So lots of different disciplines needed to uh, help make these promising startups uh, more of a reality. Absolutely. Well, Shantanu, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising and returning to HBS from your class of 10 roots. It's been a really terrific, wide-ranging conversation. Really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you, Professor Toffel. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. 
That was my conversation with Shantanu Agarwal, co-founder and director of Sistera. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.